In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. When we hear stories of other people's success, their journeys often seem straightforward and obvious. In today's Money Tales, our guest Courtney Kingston shares her experience that it's not until you have a chance to look backwards at your life that you see how all the dots connect. Courtney's family has many roots in Chile on their farm outside of Santiago. This multicultural background influences much of who Courtney is, including her role as a leader of the family vineyard. Interestingly, Courtney's initial career steps didn't involve the farm. She started her professional life at Deloitte, serendipitously learning the ins and outs of the wine industry. Then she heads off to Stanford for an entrepreneurial MBA experience. Hi, this is Sandy. As an MBA student, Courtney wrote the Vineyard's original business plan using the Chilean farm her family had owned and operated since 1906. After many discussions about the feasibility of converting the farm into a vineyard, Kingston Family Vineyards became a reality in 1998. Stanford has written two case studies on Kingston Family Vineyards, highlighting the family's purpose-driven, growth-oriented business spanning 100 years, including a recent move into hospitality and tourism. Now, on to our interview with Courtney Kingston. Courtney Kingston, it is so great to have you on Money Tales. Hi, Cammie. Hi, Sandy. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? In particular, a couple pivotal moments that get you to who you are today. Sure. So my name's Courtney Kingston. I was born and raised in the U.S., but my father was born and raised in Casablanca, Chile and met my mother because he was mowing lawns to help pay for his college tuition. I would say some pivotal moments in my life, probably first is my college education. It's where I learned how to read, how to write, and how to critically think. My first trip to Chile when I was 20, and my move to California after college. I drove across country. I was just taking a year to explore. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I wanted to go, but my best friend and I decided we'd live in San Francisco for a year. And I'm here 30, almost 30 years later. Excellent. It's good to have you. Let's go back to your youth and maybe share with us a little bit more about growing up with these parents, with siblings, Tell us maybe how you all handled money in the household. Sure. So I am one of three. I am the youngest and I have two big brothers. And I think that's the right way to phrase it. And that's telling and phrasing it just that way. And my mother is an Episcopal priest as well as hospital chaplain. And my father, the one who grew up in Chile, started with pig farming lawn mowing, and then spent 40 years in international banking. Got his first job because of his Spanish with Citibank. 
So how is money used and discussed in our house? Is that would be helpful? It would be helpful. When I first think about that question, it wasn't talked about a lot. So I, I think it's probably a little bit more learning by osmosis and modeling. There was always sort of a sense that sort of take what you need and leave the rest. Money was an enabler. It was a, it gave you agency and it gave you choice, but it actually was something that was meant to be behind the scenes and not out in front of you. And instead, something that helped you accomplish what you were hoping to accomplish in your community and in your life. And Courtney, tell us about growing up in a household with parents from two different countries. There must have been a lot of cultural differences popping up. And I'm curious to know if if there were some cultural differences around money in the context that you just described for it. So while my dad was from Chile, his grandparents, my great-grandparents, were actually from the U.S. And they left the U.S. around 1906. My great-grandmother from Brooklyn, my great-grandfather from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and then they met down in South America in their 20s. And so my dad was born and raised in rural, what was then rural Chile. And so they were not expats in the sense that they were living immersed in their community in rural Casablanca. My mom grew up very close to Princeton University. So I would say you could question Sandy was how it influenced what it was like to grow up with this international family. A couple of things. One, we often used money for travel. That was very important. And exposure to the world around us was super important. So my brothers were born in Venezuela. We lived in Puerto Rico, Jamaica, you name it. I was born in Princeton when my parents were pretty much home for what they would call a home leave. Back then, they would actually send you on forced leave when you worked for the bank for two weeks. And that was long enough for the, them to figure out if you were cooking the books or not. And <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh, I was born back home on uh, one of those times back in 1970. They lived on the international circuit, and that was back when your job would transfer you, and you just your mom or your dad would get transferred. That's how you move. It's very different than today, and so they got transferred a lot. And I think they had actually gotten transferred back to the U.S. and thought they were there to stay. I was born, you know, they settled in, bought a house, and then suddenly we got transferred to Jamaica. And how long were you in Jamaica? Three years. I like to tell everybody for my two truths and a lie that Bob Marley was my neighbor. But first of all, I was, you know, zero to three. So I do not then remember much. And he was a bunch of hills over. But we lived in Kingston. So that was uh, Kingston 8. So that was quite fitting. When did dad leave the banking world and become part of something different? When I was growing up, we call it the farm. The family business is called the farm. It was, it actually was not front and center. My grandfather was still running the business. The uh, motto in our family was ask not what the farm can do for you, but what can you do for the farm? Don't quit your day job and never bet the farm. So when I was growing up, my dad was, and my mom were busy, honestly, working, pursuing their careers, not quitting their day jobs. And then they would occasionally, there would be family reunions or a call where the farm needed help and support. But it was largely run by my grandfather and then in the very capable hands of my uncle Enrique. So my family is Puro. My cousins are Rebecca, Trinidad, Isabel. My uncle's Enrique Allende. He's as Puro Chileno as I'm Pura Gringa. So we're really 
completely intermixed. So I actually didn't go to Chile until I was 20 when I was doing thesis research in college at the Princeton School of International Affairs. And it was a part of my identity. You know, college is such a special time of self-discovery. And I was trying to understand more about my family's history in Chile. Courtney, had your grandparents and uncle and cousins come to the United States to visit you? Yes. Okay. Yep. My grandfather, what I remember the most about him was baseball because he always tracked baseball. And in fact, my dad knows how to do stats because when they were in Chile, they had to do all their own stats and they listened to the games on short range radio. And uh, he would come up here and there, but not a lot. It was a long way, even in the 90s, you know, that was or 80s. That's when we worried about long distance phone calls, or at least your grandparents always worried about the cost of the call. (laughs) So I knew my Chilean family, but not that well. It's amazing for me to think that 20 was the beginning for me. At that point, I was in many ways fully formed, but not in other ways, not at all. I had a lot more to do. Would you share with us a little bit more about this pivotal trip? I'm sure seeing differences in money situations impacted you. And I'd love to hear what was going through you and your thinking. This was, for me, it was 1990. I, in college, studied international affairs and public policy, and I was writing my senior thesis. And so I went to do research, actually, ostensibly. And I was, my thesis advisor was a Marxist. He was this awesome guy, Miguel Jimenez, who had his Professor um, Jimenez always had his fist in the air. And then meanwhile, my family's history on our farm, which we first, we've now had for over a century, which used to be five hours to Santiago, because you had to go over two passes. Today, it's one hour to Santiago. I was coming down knowing that I was quite different, right? Like here I was researching, I was actually researching civil liberties under Pinochet, very sensitive conversation. At that point, Chile was actually under military dictatorship and in the process. It was after the plebiscite transitioning to democracy. You can tell that I thought I might go to law school or work in policy, as I, and I ended up going into entrepreneurship. But it was formative for me because, one, the farm was such an incredible place with such a long history. I felt came home to me the privilege and the responsibility that I had by the good fortune, honestly, of just being born with the last name Kingston. And then, as I mentioned, responsibility, what that meant in going forward in terms of take what you need, leave the rest, never bet the farm. How are you going to help? So it was formative to me because I felt such a deep, when you drive onto the farm, there's these big old eucalyptus trees on either side. And it's this powerful, these trees are older than the farm is for our time on the farm. It's this powerful moment where you're reminded how small you are. And also that it's your responsibility. It's an obligation and a responsibility to pass it on better than you found it. Almost like a minimal impact camping, you know, where you are not only leaving no trace, but you're, you're returning it ideally better than you found it if somebody had left a trace. So that stayed with me to when I moved out to California three years later, this sense of how could I be of service to the Casablanca community? What role could I play? While I also was super aware of my fist in the air, like Miguel Jimenez and my you know, I, my hair was short. I always sort of, I'm like a bull in the china shop in Chile. I always step in, you know, I, re, I pride myself in the handshake. Women don't shake hands. And I mean, all this is changing post-COVID, but you, you kiss a cheek 
So there was always this sense of connection and identity and yet struggling with how, uh, what role I could play with it, but a commitment to doing that. So Courtney, before you visited the farm, was there a lot of discussion about the farm in your family? It was discussed as in, you need to know about this. So take Spanish. Back then, everybody took French in public school, or mostly. There were many more kids signing up for French than Spanish. Those were the only two that were offered at Princeton High School. But otherwise, no, because remember, don't quit your day job. There was a real sense of the farm can't support you, so you need to go and and make your own way, just like my dad did, just like my mom did as one of the first women ordained in the Episcopal Church in the 70s. I mean, she still had people refusing to take communion from her or not wanting her sitting next to their bed if she was wearing a collar because she was a woman. Interesting. So you go to the farm at age 20 doing research, and it sounds like you just had this amazing heart connection with not only the people there, but the place. Very much so. And so that stuck with you as you moved on to California? Exactly. And then the challenge for me was to figure out how could I be of service while also feeding myself, while also putting my own oxygen mask on first and making sure that I was well fed while I was also hopefully helping others. How'd you do it then, Courtney? Well, that's such a good question. And I don't always get it right. I'll be 100% honest with you. When I moved out to the Bay Area, it reminded me of Chile. The Northern California, is Chile is incredibly diverse, right? We, we cover, in the number of latitudes we cover, go from Alaska all the way down to Guatemala, if you were to lay our country across that distance. But in central Chile and central coastal Chile, where Casablanca is, it is remarkably similar to the San Francisco Bay Area. So I felt very at home in California. And that's where I'm speaking to you today. I have now, I've been grounded, unable to travel to Chile for over a year now, like everybody else has been grounded. So I started, I took my first job out of college was with a consulting firm. I was convinced it was not the right place to be, but they paid my rent. Remember, it came with this background of don't quit your day job. You got to figure out how you're going to cover the basics. And uh, that was my first job that I was fortunate enough to get out of college. And I learned a lot then. In fact, when I talked to my nieces and nephews and anyone else that I'm fortunate enough to mentor in my life of younger professionals, I talk about growing your toolkit, what tools you put in your kit. That was a very helpful time because we got to see a lot of different organizations and understand them. And that's actually when I realized I had better capacity in the private sector than the public sector. Up until then, I'd really seriously been considering going to work for a non-governmental organization or work for the World Bank or get involved in some kind of policy or public organization. So I did that. And then I was fortunate enough to get into graduate school at Stanford for my MBA. That was a terrific setting to me. Stanford really celebrates an entrepreneurial alternative approach to your MBA, where some other schools can be a little more traditional in terms of big business. After grad school, I had to pay for my loans. So I worked in tech for four years until I paid those off. And then I took a break, un sabbatico. It was also the same year my dad was retiring from 40 years at Citibank. And he was retiring at before 60. 
it was a time I was burning out in my job in tech. I'd been super happy and, but then was really running out of steam. And dad was considering what was next for him. And that was the beginning of us both turning towards the family business to see how we might be of service. I want to go into that at greater length. But before we go there, what were some key lessons that you learned from your mom and your dad from around budgeting? Or how do you not waste the money? It seems like you were very driven. What was the key lesson? How'd they teach you that? Most of what I've learned around money was from my father. From my mom, I learned how to be a good listener and empathy. From my dad, he started pretty early in terms of, they both modeled, of course, but I'll never forget my dad trying to teach me a little bit about equity markets and the idea of long-term investing and compound interest. Also budgeting. My parents consistently were, were trying to, where they could, they would give me a boost to get in the room, to get the interview or get the seat at the table. And then it was up to me what I did with it. We were encouraged at an early age to get jobs in high school, to have spending money, college, to pay for your books and all of that kind of thing. But my dad, early on, whether it was in equity markets, whether it was in putting money away to save, I mean, my first job out of college, I was 21. I was young. Princeton graduated young. And I got my first job in the Bay Area out here in San Francisco. I remember calling my dad with the offer and saying, is this good? What do I do? Like, is it, 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 I don't know. And so he gave me some feedback and he really was my biggest mentor and is to this day advocate and always helps me. He never tells me the answer. He always helps me with how to frame and think about the challenge. At 21, my dad taught me about 401ks and retirement accounts and said, so why don't you put a little bit of money in your paycheck that, you know, even before it hits your bank account and go, that should go into a 401k. That's free money. They're matching it. That's terrific. I, I worked for Deloitte at the time. Similarly with in investing in the market in mutual funds, he has always been somebody who's thought, don't pick stocks. You can't pick stocks. You can't beat the market. Don't try to beat the market, but go in it for the long term. So I was fortunate enough to be able to pay for part of my graduate education with the Janus fund that I invested in at 21 with $200 a month that I put aside. And again, it was an auto. He taught me about dollar averaging. These are just, these are very basic con and, and no load. Dad's not a fan of fees, bank fees in particular, having worked for a bank for 40 years has always taught me the lowest fees you can get, the better. And Courtney, what did that feel like to be able to self-fund part of your graduate school expenses? So important to me. I, it gave me a huge sense of self-worth and identity. I'll never forget when I, my parents came out to visit me for the first time in California pretty soon after I moved out here. By the way, my dad was not excited about me moving across country. I'm the youngest. I'm the only girl. And I remember him saying, California, they're not in touch with reality out there. And <laughs> he, he, to this day, he's like, did I really say that? Like, dad, you really said that. But anyway, they came out and it was so important for me to host them. I took them out to dinner. I took them to wine country. None of us knew anything about wine, but I thought that might be something fun and was very grown up. 
That's really fun that no one knew anything about wine because we're going to get there. We're going <laughs> to now we're going to lead into the next stage of life, which was what? That's funny because actually it's that trip when mom and dad came. I bought the most expensive bottle of wine I'd ever bought. How much was it? It was $16. It was a Joseph Phelps Chardonnay. And we pulled into the garage of my apartment that I was so proud to you know, share with three other roommates in San Francisco. And I promptly dropped it on the garage floor. And I'll never forget that bottle. And every, I mean, for my family too, that was like, my parents weren't buying wine. I, I didn't grow up drinking wine. That was very fancy. And in fact, the Joseph Phelps I bought because it was memorable, but the second bottle I bought was cheap. I bought it because it was cheaper than a six pack of beer. That was my, like, those are my standards. <laughs> and you know, they are today. I'm always looking for value. Oh my gosh. So tell us what happened. <laughs> like, were you just devastated? Oh gosh, we can still, yeah. So funny. I was just talking to my mom about it on Saturday and we just stood around it it the the bottle i can still see the garage floor and i can still see the bottle was in one of those um little brown paper bags like a one bottle brown paper bag so it didn't shatter in 10,000 pieces it just sort of sadly oozed chardonnay on the floor oh, yeah it was very gosh. sad heartbreak heartbreak <laughs> i can i can appreciate that but again it was the idea of that independence you know the being able to take care of my family be able to take care of myself that was a value that i deeply internalized and have held to this day so courtney you're taking a break from tech your dad retired you're in conversation Tell us what you guys were talking about and how you acted on that conversation. While I had been actually at Deloitte, I got put as the junior analyst, which is AKA data grunt on a benchmarking study, which is also known as business development for consulting firms in the wine industry. And so I was the one who was sitting there getting the profit and loss and balance sheets from, which by the way, I had, I had no idea what a profit and loss or a balance sheet was, but I was the one setting up the formulas to crunch the numbers for this wine industry study. So I learned a bunch about the industry back time. Then you remember I took my parents to Napa. This was the same time that the Chilean wine industry was really going through a bit of a renaissance. It was post Pinochet and uh, Chile was really opening up to the world. And there was lots of excitement going. And um, in Casablanca, our valley in particular, we were, our neighbors started planting vines, but they were all, they were dairy operations like we were, and they were all planting their vines far enough apart so they could run their dairy tractor through the rows. And they were planting those grapevines in the flats. I, meanwhile, was learning what was happening on the Sonoma coast and the South Central coast and seeing how high-end vineyard management was happening. And those were the guys in the benchmarking study that I saw confidentially were actually making money. Meanwhile, at the farm, our biggest challenge was that the dairy and beef cattle business had grown. We needed to grow to compete scale. You see that happening at dairy businesses across the US, and which we did, but the numbers were getting scarier and scarier. And we were not in control of our destiny. We were the price of milk today is set by the Kiwis in New Zealand. It's such a global market. And so, and my uncle has done an incredible job 
with all of these externalities. But we were trying to think, how could we diversify the farm? What could we do to business we could create? And that's when we started to look at the vineyard business. And when I was actually at Stanford, I worked on a business plan and a business case. And um, so that's dad and I, the Keystone Cops, and my brother, Tim, in his copious free time, of which he had none, but he's so incredibly high performing, he somehow finds the time. And we decided to, got family approval to plant Pinot Noir in the hills of our farm where the cows didn't like to go. What serendipity. Oh my goodness. You go from visiting Napa, being on the benchmarking study, and having this this need to diversify and being in business school to really think this through and have the family that you have. When you look back, things make a little more sense. You know, your zigs and your zags that we all have in life. When you're in it, you just feel like you're on this meandering walk and, and gosh, you hope you figure it out. So you're kind to say that it all looked like I, I had it all planned, um, but it really was serendipity and uh, good fortune and some hard work along the way. Courtney, tell us about some of those initial family conversations, including your uncle and your cousins and other family members who are presumably living on or very near the farm. So a couple of things that's important to know about our family business. I mentioned the ask not what the farm can do for you, but what can you do for the farm and don't quit your day job. So nobody is on, dependent on the farm for their livelihood. That's always been super important because the farm cannot support anyone. Everybody is pretty much volunteers. <laughs> so it wasn't hard to volunteer. And there was also this sense of what could we do? My great grandfather, the one from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, he was the mining engineer. He was look. We ended up in Casablanca because he was looking for gold, and we joke we're still looking. They ended up as the suckers on the deal, and the little bit of money they put up, and and they ended up with some land and cows and an old house, which we are eternally grateful for today. But anyway, there was always this sense of what's next for the farm, what could we do, and that entrepreneurial mentality really was woven through everything. And so that wasn't crazy. That was actually pretty consistent with the family. And then the idea was to use what you have. So always looking at something that might be complementary, but not detract from the existing business. And so this was complimentary, as in not detracting. It was up in the hills that the cows didn't want. We, uh, When we asked who wants to invest, most family members said, thanks so much. No, thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got enough to support the farm when, when there is the occasional capital call or plunging in the price of milk. Otherwise, it was really important to get my uncle Enrique's support. Because without Enrique and Sally, by the way, Sally in Chile is Sarita. We call her Sally. And my dad jokes every time we get together. Uh, her English is worse every year because <laughs> uh, she's uh, pura chilena. Thanks to Sally and Enrique, who run the farm, and my cousins now, the fourth generation, who are all my peers in their 40s. It's thanks to them because they're there day to day that we can actually contribute what we do going back and forth. Getting Enrique's buy-in was very, very important and his support. But it's a big departure. Grapevines are crazy long-term investment. You're also swinging for the fences in terms of hoping that you actually, you do all your temperature studies and soil studies that you want, but ultimately 
it's only going to be what you see in the bottle six years later will you actually know if you have any chance. Wow. I'm super curious. Are you married at the time at this point? No. You're not. Okay. No, so you didn't have to turn Yeah, and that was critical. Yeah, I turned 30 unmarried. And when I, you know, obviously when we first wrote the business plan. And so actually it was really, it was my big brother, Tim, and I, who were working on this business plan and thinking of this idea, we working together was a real gift. And one of the other things I struggled with being on the West Coast, by the way, is I'm incredibly close to my family. And how could I stay out here and not see them? And so actually my ability to go and not be connected to them, to go into the family business, that fulfilled that need for me. Let me live in this place that I really love, that just connects, that I feel so at home in on on so many fronts here in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and then have the chance to talk to my dad and my brother and now my sister-in-law on a daily basis. Doesn't get much better than that. Tell us, Courtney, in the beginning, that was a bold move. You're a young woman, you're flourishing in your professional career, you're Stanford MBA, and you huddle with your family and decide that you're going to pursue a really risky adventure. Well, to Cammie's question, I wasn't married. I didn't have children. I didn't have that much to lose. I had loved working in tech because it was super fast. I'm somebody who's motivated not by money, but by the people that I work with. That's what fills my bucket. And I was, that time, you know, it was called high tech, but I was burned out. I really wasn't, I was at a crossroads where I went from a job that I adored. I couldn't believe they paid me to do my job in business development. I worked for a company called CNET, uh, which was later bought by part of it by NBC. I worked in the NBC Universal. This was their early dot-com stuff. But I had worked too hard. I was missing my family, my personal life. I remember I used to go on these dates that I'd sort of push to the periphery of my job. And I thought it was just a numbers game. And so it was all about deal flow. And so I had all these dates, but for some reason, nobody would call me back the second time or or pick, they would ghost me. And it's probably because the the first date sounded like I had a marketing pitch (laughs) because I did it so often. So anyway, I was at a bit of a crossroads and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. Somebody had told me, a good friend of mine, John Faris had said, you know, it doesn't matter what you do before 30. But at 30, you kind of got to start figuring out. I remember thinking, like, oh my gosh, I'm 30. Pressure's on. Yeah. And so what really helped me to make that leap, Sandy, was to bring the goalposts in. I kept all my irons in the fire at my old job and said, I love, you know, I this is, by the way, I built, you can imagine, a, a real network and a, a, something very valuable and and financially rewarding, but I wasn't happy. So I kept my eyes and the fire there. So everybody knew that I was, I might come back. And then meanwhile, I said, you know, I just kind of got to go try this. Got to go try this dream. You know, I'd had this little box on the shelf. That's, that's nice to have your dream in a nice little box with a little red bow. It takes some chutzpah to take it down and open it up because it might not be what you think it is. But I didn't feel like I had that much to lose. And I felt like with the goalposts in close, I could give it a shot. And then one thing slowly led to another. I mean, again, it now it's been 20 years, but it's been an evolution as opposed to a 
revolution, right? Is it so typical for us to be looking for the big bang and the, but it's really been an evolutionary one for which I'm very grateful. Courtney, when did Kingston Family Vineyards become Kingston Family Vineyards? Yeah, well, so the farm, my great-grandfather ended up with the farm in 1922, great-grandmother and great-grandfather, excuse me, and we planted our first grapevines in 1998. So that was the beginning of Kingston Family Vineyards. Today, actually, we not only farm organically uh, wine grapes like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Syrah and Sauvignon Blanc, uh, but we also host guests on our farm. So Chile is really an adventure travel destination, and all of the flights typically come in and out of Santiago, and then you connect to go to Patagonia, to go see the glaciers, or go up to Atacama Desert to see the geysers or the spring flowers or what have you, or even go to the Lake District to ski down a, a volcano, which is a pretty energizing experiences, you can imagine. But everybody comes through what we call the Region Metropolitana, which is the, the metropolitan region. And we today are only one hour from there. Remember the five hours to Santiago when my dad was growing up? There are now tunnels through those two coastal ranges. And so it's only an hour. So we host guests on our farm. We are actually now in uh, hospitality and tourism. We've been closed since March 16th, 2020. So we're still thankfully shipping wine to our guests' homes. People, after they visit us, we, particularly to the Americans and the Chilenos, we ship wines to their homes as a part of their memory of their experience with us. Our first wines were made in 2003, and the rest is history. Courtney, tell us, what's most rewarding to you and most challenging to you about being a female leader of a multi-generational family that spans two different continents? There are a bunch of gifts. One is my husband and Andy and I have three daughters. And my hope is that in some way I'm inspiring to our girls in terms of what they might do next. I also have the good fortune to see my nieces. I've got four nieces who are all in of college age in their early 20s. I hope that in a small way, my experience might be a value to them. I would say one of my biggest challenges gets back to my joke about being the bull in the china shop. I think I'm a good listener, but I'm also very transparent and I'm quite direct. And in Chile, there's much more nuance. In fact, they would call direct exigente at times. And exigente means bossy, <laughs> lacking nuance. And so I have run into that a couple times where I have rubbed even family members, probably more, more frequently family members, the wrong way for my sense of what I think or where I might want us to go. So that's been a learning experience for me in general. I've learned to kiss cheeks instead of shake hands. You talked about your daughters and your nieces, and I think it expands beyond this, but how do you think about financial education and financial literacy? You're really passionate about it? I'm super passionate about it. Great. Will you share with us a little bit about your passion and what you're doing in that area? Yeah, well, I hope that I can just be another voice or another resource like my father was for me. So, and this isn't just to my own family. This is to, in our team in, in Chile, our, the 
backbone of our team, as you can imagine, are Chilenos, but we also hire Americans. We really believe in the Chilean-American dialogue and the multicultural dialogue. None of us are just uh, bicultural anymore. We're all multicultural, all mezclado. My hope is if I can leverage that transparency to talk about money or to talk about financial literacy in a way that can help others, I'm thrilled. So for instance, we try as much as possible with our hospitality and winery businesses to essentially do open book management wherever we can and to educate about how we run our business and why we reinvest in it, what the economics are. That's really important to me. And I feel like I'm just getting started on that front. Also, I'm really, I'm hopeful uh, more for women in particular of a sense of financial literacy. Stanford Business School wrote a case, has actually now written two, uh, potentially a third case on our business. Everything is in there. Normally when business school cases get written, they mask the numbers or the business only, the protagonist only agrees if it's like 50 years ago and you're talking about big pens or something. <laughs> it's all in there. Like it's all in there. And in fact, what you see is a lot of red because we're focused on such a long term of trying to build these sustainable businesses and the stewardship of the land. I just do everything from trying to talk the way to my daughters and to my nieces and to my nephew about the way I think about things to even tangible things. I actually force them. We gather in August at a cabin on the Canadian border of Vermont in the middle of nowhere. And I think it was last summer that I forced them to all watch a little mini video about building credit, right? Because they're all going to college and you know, being barraged by all of these credit cards that wanted to give them, give them credit. And I was actually talking to them about the importance of establishing your own credit. Like it, it is, you should get off of mom and dad's cell phone family plan and establish your own name. It really matters. And by the way, it's something that I've run up against time and time again. Most recently, Andy and I have moved to Chile and we're fortunate enough to put our kids in school there to, uh, with my Chilean cousins about five years ago when he was between companies and job opportunities. I couldn't get a bank account because I had no credit established in Chile. To this day, I'm pretty sure I got the bank account because my big brother went in and said, you need to give her a bank account. And I'm grateful that he got me the seat at the table and got helped me get, you know, signed to say, get me the bank account. But gosh, darn it, like, I'm going to get that myself next time. And I'm going to get it because I've got a proven record. So it's just little things like that. It's It's like my dad telling me to put $200 away or, you know, my husband and I trying to talk about charitable giving more openly with the kids, just like my parents did. And the idea of it not being in many ways, it's not our money. Courtney, how would you describe the purpose of money in your life today? I think that takes us back to the, the beginning of our conversation. So for me, I approach it with a real sort of growth mindset, because I'm fortunate. I have time and time again, I'm fortunate that money has been an enabler where it's given me that boost. And then my job is to hopefully use it to impact those around me, whether that's my family, whether that's our community, whether that's our employees, 
whether that's the, you know, thousand MBA students that come through Kingston each year when we're all traveling internationally to learn about our business, having read the Stanford case. So I would say money for me gives me a sense of responsibility and obligation along with that independence and choice. Courtney, you talked about these MBA students coming through Kingston, which is really amazing that you give back in this way. What do you find most consistently coming up with those those students? Thank you for asking. You know, it's really something we just stumbled upon. I was, because when I'm in the U.S., I'm not far at all from Stanford. It was just easy for me to go over there. And then one thing led to another where a couple of cases were being written about our business from my speaking. And then that's just sort of gotten picked up. So this is all come to us by having these graduate school communities be interested in our story. You know, it's actually not dissimilar than our conversation today. Questions about my own personal journey, decisions, key pivot points. It's a business that we are creating and growing. I have nothing to hide. It's like Pinot Noir. There's no secret recipe. You just hope that you, through your work and your good fortune, can make a terrific wine. And I feel the same about speaking openly and hopefully with candor about my life experience personally and professionally. It's not that I've figured it out or that I've got some secret sauce that you don't. And I hope that in being honest about that and talking about my successes, but also, you know, in Chile, we, we often say something is, is uh, very muy complicado. And that means it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> always complicated, right? And if we can just be honest about that, I think it's it's really important. We can't agree more. Courtney, tell us what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation? I think I'm grateful for the the take what you need and, and leave the rest. And then the power of saving steadily. I think sometimes we lose track of what we need, right? It's kind of hard to know what you need. It's a little bit like saying, what do you feel? You're like, oh gosh, what do I feel? I don't know what I feel. And so if you can, for me, put put just a little bit aside consistently. I mean, the, actually the day our first daughter was born, we opened a 529 and we did it again with the second daughter and we did it again with the third daughter. And the money that's in those accounts I feel like I've never seen it because it just goes straight there. That's not a ton of money that we put in there, but we've been putting it in there since they were born. And that adds up. And I think that's the power of, honestly, compounded value is remarkable. And the power of long term, we used to listen to the rabbit and the hare, slow and steady wins the race, right? Um, And I feel often that that's what matters. So that would be my one piece. I'm not sure I can call it wisdom, but it is a a guiding light that's helped me. Mm, It's it's great advice. What is your next money conversation going to be in and who is it going to be with? Oh, that's so funny. Well, I'm speaking to you from my clothis, which is a closet slash office because both my husband and I work from home. My husband works for a company called Slack Technologies, but I think hopefully a lot of people use these days working from home. 
And we are busting at the seams in the house that we stretched and stretched to buy before we had our first child. I'm a nester. I'm very happy in this little house. And it's not little. We feel very fortunate. It's 1,800 square feet. The conversation is, do we or do we not move? Or can we hold on for the time being? Because it'll be just the two of us in a, in a pretty short period of time. <laughs> Goes fast. So that's my honestly next conversation from my claws. It's a great conversation to be had. And thank you so much, Courtney, for sharing really such tremendous insights and what a great story. It's, it's complex. It's interesting. And you were really, you shared so much with us. So thank you. We appreciate your, your transparent leadership as well. That really came through in the conversation today. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Cammie. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for asking me to join you today. Cammie, I enjoyed speaking with Courtney Kingston and I'm ready to try some of the wines from the vineyard. I am too. I'm ready to have some Kingston family vineyard wines. They, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty too. It really was another rich conversation hearing from someone who's a female leader in a family business, the cross-border, the extended family. It just was, there's a lot of different lessons there. There are. And the thing that keeps coming to my mind from the conversation is how Courtney said, it's not clear to her how all of her dots connected until she looks back over her shoulder in the past, because as she was leading up to pulling the vineyard together and, and working on it with her family, it, it was just something that sort of evolved over time. It wasn't the initial idea of her career. So Sandy, while she's talking, it all sounded like it hung together as if it was the master plan, you know, working at Deloitte, working for the, in the wine industry, going to business school. It just seemed like it was an obvious, but once again, that's because I got to look back through her story. And I think it's really interesting to try to put ourselves in Courtney's 30-year-old shoes when she's taking a break from work and deciding with her father and brother that they're going to create this vineyard. And just really stepping off the cliff and taking a big risk, not knowing how it would play out. And I think that's something that comes up for a lot of people in their lives. And it's interesting that Courtney shared for her, it was happening before she really had financial commitments outside of just making sure that she was taking care of herself. I appreciated her talking about that because she also set herself up to be in as low a risk as possible by having her loans paid off, being really financially thoughtful before she jumped into something risky. And I thought that this is someone who does take seriously, you don't bet the farm. That's right. She did a lot of research, which I think is helpful too. Taking risks can lead to some really great rewards, but it's important to do all your homework and really prepare as much as you can for the risks so that you can try to insulate yourself from different possible outcomes. Sandy, what do you think about Courtney talking about moving the goalposts in. I loved that. As you know, many of our guests talk about moving the goalposts out. Once they achieve success, they look to achieve the next hurdle and the next one after that. And I thought that was a really interesting expression that Courtney used when she talked about taking the risks of bringing everything in and setting the bar lower so that they could have a higher likelihood of achieving the vineyard vision that they had set out for themselves. Sandy, I moved the goalposts. 
I don't even mean to. Out or in, Cammy? I move them out all the time, at least in my brain. Oh, if only we had, if only. And then, you know, so it is a, there's, it, there's no wonder that it's one of the challenges. And it's why probably when I heard it, I was really impressed because I think it's very easy to move the goalposts out and not pull them in. So Kimmy, I have a question for you. Yeah. Do you spend time looking back over your shoulder and viewing all the different goalposts that you have achieved? No, I'm looking more in the future. What are we trying to accomplish? But I do look back over my shoulder and and see the dots connect. Isn't that funny? Like, oh, that's why this happened. Now it all makes sense. How about you, Sandy? I do look back. I think for me, it is a series of looking forwards and backwards constantly. And I do create goalposts. Initially, though, in my life, I was very clear on exactly what the goalposts looked like, and I'd attach numbers to them and timeframes. And now my goals have gotten more beautiful. There's flowers and hearts and different people's faces. They're less about measurement in in terms of numbers, more in the measurement of satisfaction and purpose. Oh, Sandy, that's a whole conversation we got to have one of these days. That's that's so right on. The older we get, right? We we appreciate it. And I think that came out for Courtney in her conversation. And it seems like that's a lot of why she and her family are sharing their business strategies and what they've done with students and people who are interested in learning from them. It's amazing. And her joining us in this podcast and then doing all that work, they walk their talk about education, their commitment and passion for education, their passion for financial literacy. And it's not just for them and their family. They want a broad community to really benefit from their experiences. And I bet a lot of that learning is not just the success. It's what have we learned from our mistakes and sharing that. And and really just, I, I really appreciate Courtney bringing that to life for us. As do I. And I hope someday we can toast her in Casablanca, Chile <laughs> at the farm because it sounds amazing. And for our listeners, if you haven't already, make sure you Google it because there's some beautiful, beautiful pictures of the property and, and what they have going on there. It's quite impressive. I'll see you there, Sandy. For anybody who wants to let us know how you're not moving the goalposts out and moving them in or any other comments you want to make, please send us an email at podcasts at aspirant.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks a lot, Cammy. See you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammy Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirant.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.